From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we'll be talking to the authors of a recent Harvard Business Review article, How Successful CEOs Manage Their Middle Act. Rodney Zemmel is a senior partner in our New York office and is managing partner of our Northeast offices. In addition to his HBR article, he's also the co-author of a new book, Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. Rodney serves clients globally on growth strategy, performance improvement, and value creation through M&A across a range of industries. With a concentration in healthcare, also joining us today is Matt Cudahy, an associate partner in McKinsey's Boston office. His client service focuses on helping leaders of pharma and biotech companies set strategy and drive growth both organically and through acquisitions and partnerships. Rodney, as we get started, could you just share with us how this article came about? Um, So at McKinsey, we have a forum uh, that we call CEO Academy that we hold once a year in New York, and we invite CEOs and board chairs of, uh, of leading companies. It was originally started as a training uh, forum almost for newer CEOs, but now it's evolved to become more of just an open discussion forum. Uh, At this event a couple of years ago, we had a panel of four very distinguished and experienced uh, household name CEOs uh, taking questions from the the group on uh, what what they thought drove uh, their success and what their lessons learned were from being uh, CEOs. Um, one of the questions that we asked was, how did the middle of your CEO tenure differ from the beginning of your CEO tenure? Right? Everybody talks about that first year, first 100 days, but what did you do in the middle that was different? And it ended up being a question that really kind of sent the group sideways a little bit. None of them had really thought about it before. They all thought it was an interesting question, and it became a discussion around not so much what they did, but maybe what they wished uh, they had done. And afterwards, one of the panelists approached us and said, that was a really interesting question. Maybe one of you should write a book about it. So we didn't quite get around to writing the book yet, but we did think it was worth some research in, uh, in putting an article together. And that's the article that was published in the Harvard Business Review and that we're going to talk about today. So in putting the article together, what we found was there, is a, you know, there are many bookshelves full of books on how to be an early tenure CEO, your first 100 days, your first 90 days, there's probably a first 80 days, but we've not found that one yet. Um, And the first year, people seem to think the first year is this magical moment where direction gets set. And in addition, there's not quite as many, but still a lot of books about the end of a CEO tenure, how you're supposed to prepare for handing over the reins, picking your successor, an orderly transition, thinking about your legacy, and so on. But those middle years of the CEO tenure were really uh, not very well uh, studied. Um, And uh, as our discussion panel showed, uh, there was kind of a a lot of debate and discussion as to whether they were different and how they were different. So we set out to do some research. We thought we'd start with some fairly open questions. Often our research is testing a specific hypothesis. This time we thought we'd go a little bit more open-ended. So tell us what some of those questions were. The first thing we said was, do you actually do different things mid-tenure? Uh, we'd actually published as McKinsey, one of my colleagues, Kurt Strovink, had published an article uh, a prior year, along with Michael Bersham, another colleague, on what do CEOs do in their first year, right? Would you cut through what people say they're going to do? What are the actual moves that people do? So we thought, let's compare those moves to what people do in the middle tenure and in the late tenure. 
we then thought it would be just as interesting to say, how do their mindsets evolve? How does a leadership style evolve? And, you know, people like to talk about mindset and leadership style, but what can you actually measure? How does the time they spend actually shift? And what were the drivers of performance? Is what drove performance in the early years the same as what drove performance in the later years? And then maybe just a little bit more retrospectively, sometimes even whimsically, what do they wish they'd done more of or less of in the middle years versus the, uh, versus the early years? Um, this, we thought, by nature was a fairly qualitative topic rather than a quantitative topic. So you'll see that our interview approach, our research approach is largely interview-based. Um, but we'll, 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 we'll explain the learnings that came from that uh, and how they might tie back also to some more uh, to some more rigorously measured data. And how do you define mid-tenure for a CEO? Were you using an average of a, or a certain number of years? So yes, the, the average CEO tenure is around five five and change years, five and a half years, and it is slightly shortening as uh, as time goes by. Uh, and of course, when one is appointed CEO, one never knows how long one is going to be around for. Um, so what we decided to do in the research was we'd say, look, people don't know, you know if you're going to be a 10-year CEO, uh, you know, a 10-year or a 12-year CEO, you don't know that. But there's certainly something different about year three than there is about year one and two. So the way we approached the questions was to say, you know, years three and four, more or less, I think in some cases we might have said three to five, how did you think about what you were doing versus what you did in year one, year two? The way we approached who we wanted to interview uh, was we said, we really want to focus on you know, companies that are you know, large enough to be relevant to draw lessons from, uh, CEOs who were in the role for at least average. We actually said, let's go for slightly longer than average. So let's talk to people who are CEOs for at least six years, at least 10 billion of market cap. And we thought we'll probably have a better, more reflective discussion with retired CEOs. So we actually pulled the data on all CEOs who had retired. Some of them may still be working as CEOs at another company, but retired from the company we were interviewing them about in 2011 to 2016. And we looked at who, has, um, who had good shareholder returns, um, both in an absolute sense and then relative to their industry. And what we found was there were about 70 companies who we thought were outperformers who met those criteria. And then we reached out to all of them, and we were able to get interviews with 22 of them. Um, it's possible there's some sample bias in the 22 that we interviewed, but the sample bias was simply who responded quickly enough to our email that we were able to schedule an interview. So uh, probably means nothing other than CEOs who were willing and excited to talk about their tenure, but all 70 who we reached out to, you would certainly objectively view, or shareholders would objectively view as having been successful. And did a number of themes emerge? Um, we found five themes. And again, given how open-ended we approached the research, I think we'd have to describe these more as themes that arose from the conversations rather than you know, direct answers to the, uh, to the questions that we asked. Um, I'll describe each of the themes at a very high level, and then Matt and I will walk through the themes one by one in a little bit more detail. Uh, the first theme, keep raising the level of ambition. The one thing that we heard in almost all of the interviews was, of course, as a CEO, you start out with a high ambition, a high aspiration. Almost everybody does some form of uh, kind of resetting the baseline, resetting the ambition in the first year. What differentiated these high performers was not how high the ambition was at the beginning, but whether they raised the ambition as they went. And we'll talk in a moment about how they did that. 
Number two was silos and broken processes. Everybody had a strategy that was not differentiating. Uh, what we thought was differentiating was in the middle years, many more CEOs decided to take on process and a word that many of them used, operating model. How you actually created an operating model for the company that helped you get things done was more typically a middle year task rather than an early year task. Although, frankly, a few of them said had they have thought about it earlier, they might have taken it on in their earlier years. Uh, the third thing is talent rejuvenation. It turns out that the standard pattern of the, you know, the, the, the CEO comes in, chooses their team in the first year or the first six months, and then that's the team that works with them over the course of their tenure, is actually not true. And certainly for the high performers, we saw ongoing rejuvenation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Number four, mechanisms for dissent and disruptive ideas. Um, it's become a cliche, but I think it's become a cliche because it's true. Um, that the CEO role, the CEO seat, can be very much an echo chamber. And people talked about how people were very open with them in the first six months, the first year, talking about all the problems and what needed to be fixed and the opportunities. But by the time they were in the middle of their tenure, it was much harder to get objective viewpoints, either from insiders or from outsiders. So they talked about ways they actually uh, artificially uh, were able to, uh, to generate those inputs. And number five is, you know, your early years are about building leadership capital. Your middle years are where you begin to spend the leadership capital. And we did see the pattern, a pattern of, uh, of bolder, uh, long-term moves as people moved into their middle and later years. Okay, how did you come up with those five themes? Were there any others that you considered that you ended up cutting? So, good question. So, the five themes, so we, we literally got the interview notes from fairly open-ended but fairly deep interviews and looked for commonalities. And these are the five that dropped out. Um, you know, there were maybe sm smaller ones that were cut uh, where there just wasn't as much overlay. One that we thought we'd see but we didn't see is we thought we'd actually see a different pattern of moves in the middle years versus in the early years. And actually we saw the moves themselves looked fairly similar, maybe with the exception of a bit of a step up in M&A that we'll talk about. But, you know, CEOs taking wildly different operational act actions, you know, whether they did a reorganization, whether they initiated a cost-cutting and so on. We thought we'd see a difference between the early years and the late years on that, but actually we really didn't. Of the five themes, which did you find most surprising? Um, I think the two that surprised me the most were... Um, First of all, the second one, uh, operating model, right? The idea that, you know, there's really a sequence between strategy is year one and then operating model changing that is year, you know, three plus as people realize that their strategy is kind of crashing on the rocks of how the company actually operates. The strength of which that came out as a theme, uh, we thought was, or I personally thought was really striking. Um, the next one that surprised me, the talent rejuvenation, the extent to which the high-performing CEOs in the group really thought of themselves as re-recruiting their team in year three and starting again from a clean slate of talent uh, was a little more dramatic than I might have guessed. Matt, you want to pick up on uh, your, 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 your surprises? I think the extent to which we heard CEOs are really digging in on this operating process, I would agree with you, Rodney, I think is you know, it was a little bit surprising. I think that, to me, the least surprising was probably around, you know, the notion of taking your, your leadership capital that you built up over your first couple of years and then investing that and using that for bigger, uh, bigger things. 
So I think some things kind of jumped out as largely, you know, we would have expected going into this prior to having the discussion. And we probably could have, you know, put all of these down on a piece of paper and said, to some extent, CEOs would be focusing on them in their middle years. But I think the extent to which we heard uh, CEOs emphasize some of these themes, such as the processes point, uh, was perhaps a little bit surprising. So maybe with that, we talk through, um, uh, we can walk through each of the uh, each of the different themes, and we'll start with the first theme, which is really around raising the level of ambition. And as Rodney said, you know, we know that CEOs, executives, and other leaders more broadly, you know, they don't make it to those positions without a high level of ambition to begin with. What was um, emphasized here was a the challenge in maintaining that level of ambition by many very, very successful CEOs. And secondly, not only the need to maintain that level, but actually to increase it with time. So a couple of the points that we heard in terms of what are those challenges that these CEOs face, you know, one was really around um, personally maintaining the hunger in the second act after the first couple of years when CEOs have expended a significant amount of energy And now there's a certain readiness to shift to more of an execution mode. You know, they feel that they've probably invested a lot in in some strategy process. Uh, They've, you know, invested a lot in terms of building up their teams. And so they start getting into this mode of of perhaps even playing defense. Um, And what we heard from several is, you know, they, they didn't quite realize it until, you know, they literally woke up one day and said, you know, I'm just, this doesn't feel like I'm one step ahead anymore, right? I feel like I'm almost one step behind. We heard that in, in several of the interviews. Um, and I think that the point that was made is once they realized that, it was very clear that, you know, in many of the industries, and all industries are different, but in, in, in many of the industries, you know, things change so rapidly that if you're not one step ahead, and, and in fact, thinking two steps ahead, um, you, you know, you're not you're not going to be able to focus on executing. You, you run some real risk. So um, that was one challenge that we heard. I think the other challenge that we heard was the desire to have some sense of stability and consistency, right, and give strategies some time to, to work. Um, you know, several of the CEOs we talked to agreed you need to keep, um, you know, kind of keep thinking about how you can change things, but don't overdo it, right? Um, and, and so the real challenge here is finding the right balance. I think all that said, right, with the recognition of these challenges, the point that we heard time and time again is, particularly today, the macro environment and competitive landscape um, is just changing too rapidly. Um, and, you know, top-performing CEOs recognize this. You know, we've heard the story. You saw one we wrote in the article about uh, Moore and Grove at Intel and kind of pre- pretending to get fired by the board and then saying, you know, what would I do if I were the new CEO? And it's oftentimes those moments that, that lead these CEOs to come up with perhaps counterintuitive ideas. And we actually heard several examples of that uh, from across the folks we interviewed. So, for example, Steve Bird at Safeway uh, kind of talked about um, how he had that question asked to him uh, by the board and actually then came in, you know, the next week and, and really thought very differently about the strategy going forward how to reposition uh, the company, thinking about some acquisitions. Uh, and we heard several other examples. So I think the, you know, the overall 
takeaway and point on this on this first theme around raising the level of ambition is, uh, given the pace of change, um, as well as the tendency that many of, of the folks we interviewed expressed to kind of become, um, I wouldn't say complacent, but, you know, you kind of get into more of an execution mode. Given these two factors, they really emphasized that it was just super critical to not only stay, you know, pedal down on the gas, but also find ways to continue to increase the ambition and would recommend, you know, we need to step back every, whether it's every quarter, every half year, and, and really, you know, almost pretend that you're getting fired or we're a new CEO coming in on Monday. What is it that you would do differently than what you have been doing? And, and you should be asking yourself that question periodically. If we go to number two, um, silos and broken processes. So this is about getting things done. So in the first year, almost every CEO described they did a strategy, whether it was completely new strategy or whether it was a renewed strategy or in, in worlds where you have a business unit leader or a COO elevating to CEO, often they felt significant ownership of the prior strategy. But there's still a case of kind of revisiting and rebuying up the strategy and direction and aligning that with the board, with the leadership team, with investors. Um, what we then found was this pattern that we referred to earlier around in or around year three, or you know, year, maybe they felt it in year two and acted on it in year three, people felt the pace of change was not high enough. Um, and um, there was one uh, wonderful quote uh, from, uh, from, from, from one of our interviewees about kind of the old normal coming back. Being a new CEO creates a certain dynamic and creates a certain level of energy in an organization, but it doesn't take that long for it to wear off and for the organization to act in all the ways that it used to act. So what does it mean? How do they actually do this? So certainly some people talked about culture and level of engagement and alignment around the strategy, and those things are all incredibly important. But what we found was the most common theme was actually really coming up with an operating system, and a number of people use that word, an operating system, and the, and, you know, the definition of operating system that was used was something that really cut across silos and really replaced, and often it was replaced rather than fixed, replaced the broken processes that the company previously had. Matt, you want to pick us up on number three? The third theme is around rejuvenating talent, right? And I think we would all uh, acknowledge and say it's, you know, uh, common knowledge that any new leader or new CEO spends a significant amount of time upfront when they come into the role on figuring out who their right team is, right? So zero surprise there. Um, and we also, you know, I think going into this, we had a sense, a general sense that, you know, sure, there's some turnover over time, but in general, CEOs like to figure out who the right team is, get comfortable with them, um, and then move forward and, and not uh, create undue um, turnover and disruption through more continued or higher degrees of change over time. Uh, what was really interesting as we had these conversations was hearing many CEOs um, actually in two different buckets. So one was the bucket of, um, you know, I ended up making some fairly significant changes to my team over time um, as the strategy shifted and as I realized I needed different leadership. The other bucket was actually... Uh, this was an area that I think was emphasized uh, perhaps more than some others as a regret. 
So one of the points of discussion we had was, you know, as you think back on your middle years, are there things that you feel you missed or regretted? And actually, the point around uh, making sure that they had the right team and perhaps changed out some of that team in these middle years was one of those points that um, was uh, repeated probably more often than many others. Um, so what are the challenges that, um, that CEOs noted getting in the way of their doing this? Um, and there were a couple of points there. You know, one of those is probably more obvious, which is around the personal connections that they built. Uh, you know, many would say, hey, I get to know them really well. I know how they work. Uh, you know, I even know their families. Uh, we're spending time together outside, uh, et cetera. And so there's, there's definitely this personal connection, which can make it a little bit more challenging, and, and, and many leaders acknowledge that. Um, but the, the real impetus, um, uh, both for why people perhaps regretted not changing out their teams as well as those who did were pleased with it and felt it was important, is that, you know, strategy shifts over time, market conditions change over time, and, in fact, different leadership styles are needed over time. So these are all themes that we heard. So one point um, that was emphasized many times as well was around the notion of really being forward-looking in assessments. You know, we all know that, you know, review processes in many ways can be anchored in performance, you know, how has the last year gone. Uh, Ed Breen of Tyco actually, I thought, had a really good analogy here, uh, which, you know, if I use the American football analogy, it's do we have the right team to win the Super Bowl next year, right? Frankly, it doesn't matter whether we won the Super Bowl last year. It doesn't even matter if we came in last place. The real question is do we have the right team to win this year, and that's all we should care about. Um, the other, uh, a couple of the other insights that we heard um, in terms of rejuvenating talent um, are around how leaders started thinking about talent more broadly in their middle uh, years. So um, not just the top team, but also the broader organization. Uh, what we heard is they worked to be more, uh, more like a coach rather than a team captain. And they also began to interface with and really work on developing uh, more junior talent, so talent below their top team, um, and, and really invest in that. So uh, idea four, mechanisms for dissent and disruptive ideas. So, you know, maybe this one is, um, uh, you know, is, is, is not surprising, right? And it's certainly kind of a classic, almost classic consultant thing to say, make sure you're getting fresh ideas, make sure you're getting external perspectives. But the, the clarity and the frequency with which we heard it, I think, was a little bit surprising. And also, again, the contrast around how complacency steps in. So Frank Blake, who obviously had a, a very successful uh, tenure at, at, at Home Depot, um, had a very interesting story about one of the things he did early in his tenure was to replace um, some store formats that were not working and really uh, you know, move to kind of a different store format strategy. And he said at the beginning when he was doing that, everybody was very happy to both tell him what was not working with store formats but also to bring in new ideas. And he got lots and lots of different ideas for store formats. He ended up rejecting the vast majority of them and focusing down on you know, a handful of ideas. And once he did that, he felt that the organization knew exactly what he was going to like and not like and just stopped bringing him ideas. And he found that whereas in the first year, by virtue of doing something new, he got you know, a kind of a very strong flow 
uh, by, I don't remember the specific year he said, but certainly by the middle of his tenure, that flow dried up, and he actively needed to seek out new flow. And the way he did it was, you know, skip-level meetings, going right to the front line, store associates, and so on. And lots of CEOs do that, and lots of leaders do that. But it's a, a number commented on how hard it is to get people to actually speak candidly. Um, one, uh, one example that Frank used that other CEOs also echoed was you actually have to prompt the, uh, prompt the speaker. So rather than saying, what do you think of X, you have to say, I hear X uh, isn't going well. Or lots of people tell me they've got thoughts on how to improve X. What do you think? And use that kind of leading question to get people to be willing to speak up a little bit more freely. Um, Ed Ludwig at BD um, described how he would do that uh, with the company strategy. He would get the company strategy written down on a two-page piece of paper and sit down with groups of people a few levels uh, down in the organization and ask them what they thought and, uh, you know, and take interest. And you know, he would study, he would sometimes get good ideas from those meetings. But more importantly, it was a way of signaling that he wanted to hear from those people and that he was open to new ideas. And they would bring those ideas forward to him. And he commented on how important it was to show that when people brought you an idea you didn't like, or even more importantly, when people brought you bad news, how important it was to show that you weren't going to shoot the messenger and to make sure that you truly were open to different and disruptive ideas. And in particular, in some of the CEOs, who self-describe themselves as a little bit more emotional, this idea of showing people, you know, if it's a team you're working with week in, week out, they can see and understand that. But when it's at other levels in the organization, they can easily be intimidated by that. So how to make sure to show people that you're not shooting the messenger and that you are open to those new ideas. Matt, you want to pick up on number five? So the fifth and, and kind of final theme is really around spending this leadership capital that the CEO or, you know, executive has uh, developed uh, over the first couple of years and investing that in bold, longer-term moves. What was interesting as we had these conversations was the degree of emphasis, um, almost as if this is, is an obligation. And I think, um, you know, many that we, you know, John Donahoe, you know, is one example who said, you know, it's basically your job. Right? It's your job to actually spend this political and, and, and kind of leadership capital that you get over the first few years because you are truly uniquely positioned. You're in a unique position with the trust you have with investors, the trust you have with the board, the trust you have with your team and your employees to really do something big um, that otherwise couldn't be done for the organization. In terms of um, timing on the moves, when we looked actually more broadly outside of the CEO group and building on some of the research McKinsey had done in the first one to two years and expanded that to the third, fourth, and fifth year, what we found was across many types of moves, you know, for example, a cost reduction program, a major restructuring M&A, there wasn't a massive difference in terms of percentage of CEOs doing those sorts of moves in the middle years versus the early years. Now, there were a few exceptions around things like geographic expansion, uh, new product launches, getting into new businesses. Um, and so I think if, if, if you were to ask these CEOs, um, then, you know, is it really all about opportunism or is there some, uh, is there some method to the madness? I think what they would say is, of course, there's, 
of course, there's an element of opportunism. We heard that loud and clear. But when you get to your mid-tenure and you finally have this leadership capital, you know, all else equal, this is the time to really be thinking about making these moves. What are the moves and how are you going to execute them? And the, the other point we heard was it's not only because you now have this leadership capital, but it's actually also because you really know the business. Um, very true for outside CEOs, but even from some who had been with the company for quite some time, it's just such a unique position, and you continue to learn so much in your first few years that it was only in their mid-tenure where we heard examples of, you know, they, they woke up one day and had an epiphany uh, about how to continue to, to, to really transform or change the trajectory of the business. There were several examples of that. So Joe Papa was one example when he was at Perigo where he talked about, you know, seeing a truck one day and realized that the value was all about getting more product on the truck, went out and then actually did an acquisition of an infant formula manufacturer. Can these themes be applied to someone who's not a CEO, but maybe is in the C-suite? Yeah, so sure. That's a great question. Actually, I meant to say that at the beginning. So thank you for the, uh, for the reminder. Um, so, I, you know, while our research was done with CEOs, we'd like to think that this is helpful to anyone who will be taking on a new role in an organization. So just as the, you know, the first year plan or the 100-day plan has become routine in many leadership roles, we think this kind of thinking can be as relevant within, an, within a piece of an organization as it is within the entire organization. So certainly, you know, we hope the article is read by CEOs and by people who want to be helpful to the CEOs in their company, but we think it's got relevance to, uh, to just about anyone in any, uh, any scale of, 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 um, of uh, a function or business unit. Did you look into how much time a CEO is spending on various activities and how that's changed over their tenure? Um, what we found, I think, was in some ways not incredibly surprising. So if you look at categories like succession planning, uh, you would expect that uh, probably CEOs are going to think about that more in their middle years. I think the things that were at least moderately surprising or interesting you know, the organizational change point, which is um, there was a significant number who either maintained the degree of change that they had in their first few years or actually increased it. So about a third actually had more organizational change, and that ties back a little bit to the point around rejuvenating talent. And then strategy and strategic moves. It was actually a slight majority who said they actually spent more time thinking about this in their middle years than they did when they first took over. And then also at the very bottom, you see the broader talent planning. Um, again, probably not unexpected, but the degree to which we found CEOs are thinking about this, um, it, it was one of the clearest areas where they're thinking much more about it in their middle years versus their early years. And, and maybe, Matt, just to click down on one of those on business performance reviews, um, we did have the hypothesis that maybe some CEOs would spend less time on business performance reviews or would even not go. That turned out not to be the case. In our sample, and remember this is of high-performing CEOs, all of them, actually, I think you know, all of them said they would still go to business performance reviews, um, you know, just, you know, just as they did in, in year one and, uh, and year two. There was maybe one who said he went a little less, but they all said they would still go. But they very commonly said the questions they would ask in those reviews would change. It was less about explain the last quarter, you know, kind of less about the here and now performance 
and more about what are we doing to be positioned for the long term. It was more forward-looking and less backward-looking in the performance review conversation. Did you get a sense from the CEOs that you spoke with about them tackling any one of these themes first? Was there any sort of sequence related to the five themes, or should they all be tackled simultaneously? You know, we probably have the five of them listed in a little bit of a hierarchy of how people thought about them. But my guess is that's more of a mental hierarchy rather than a temporal hierarchy. So I think they've probably tackled them all at once. And again, this is an interview sample, so not every CEO tackled every theme. But, uh, you know, notionally they tackled all of them kind of all at once, but maybe with this level of mental priority. Uh, So, you know, keep raising the level of ambition being the first one and thinking about the moves that you can uniquely do in the seat as the uh, the fifth one. Rodney and Matt, thank you again for taking the time with us today. That's all from Inside the Strategy Room. Thanks again for joining us. And you can find the edited transcript of this podcast on McKinsey.com and on our Insights app. And be sure to connect with us there and on LinkedIn and Twitter. 